Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Mark Santum. All right, number one, that's the first thing to learn about John. John was a subject of many conversations centuries before he was even born. Um, many years before John was born, his importance was already being heralded and anticipated by several prophets, namely uh, the prophets Isaiah and the prophets Malachi. If you're Italian, that would be Malachi, however you want to cut it up. But let's start with Isaiah. In Isaiah 39, it's written very historically, a lot of details and facts in there. And what you learn from Isaiah 39 in the previous chapters is that the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem are freaking out because they realize that the impending judgment, the Babylonians are about to roll on in, plunder their holy city, and carry them off into exile. At this point, Isaiah knows there's nothing that can stop it. That ship has already sailed. They did not repent, so they're facing judgment. So Isaiah 40 shifts. If you ever read Isaiah, you come to 40, and it's like, hmm, is this a different author? It sounds so different. But it switches into prophetic mode, where Isaiah then begins to look at the future. Realizing the discomfort and that God's people are at loose ends, he speaks this. In Isaiah 43, he said, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So what does that comfort look like? If you look there in verse 3, which will be on the screen, Isaiah 43, this is how he gives comfort. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So how does the prophet Isaiah comfort his people? With a promise and a direct reference to John the Baptist. It's almost a new exit of source. So John, remember how Moses was a forerunner leading the people out of the Egypt through the Red Sea? It'll be similar to that, except it'll be out of a spiritual wilderness and exile to a promised land. And this promised land has a name, and his name is Jesus. Then there's Malachi. He's the last of the minor prophets recorded in the Old Testament. Notice I didn't say that he was the last Old Testament prophet. Anyhow, what would... God's parting words be through the last recorded minor prophet in the Old Testament. He says this in through and behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Um, John the Baptist has the privilege of being the only prophet to ever be um, the ever be the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Pretty cool. In Malachi 4, 5 through 6, he continues. You can see it on the screen. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, before that comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else, everyone say, or else, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So you see, God's judgment, his wrath was coming, but in his mercy, he was going to send John the Baptist, or as this verse says, Elijah, to come and prepare the way. So what's the deal? Why would he say Elijah? Well, um, here Malachi is connecting the person and ministry of John the Baptist with the prophet Elijah. Even Gabriel, in the next slide, Gabriel, whenever he appears, to John the Baptist's father, said this, John will go before him, meaning Jesus, in the spirit and the power of who? 
Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. For many reasons, we know that John was not Elijah reincarnated. So even if reincarnation were a real thing, the thing about reincarnation is you have to die first, right, to be reincarnated. And if you remember anything about Elijah, he never died. Hashtag swing low, sweet chariot. Am I right? Coming forward to carry me home. But Jesus even goes on in Matthew twice and declared that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. And it is clear that you know that many people in that time, kind of the Jewish messianic mythology of the day, they thought that Elijah himself would, would kind of reappear from heaven. All right? But that's not what Jesus or anyone is saying. In fact, just to clear that all up, um, when John the Baptist was on the scene, people still thought this. And so they had a bunch of people came to John and they said, hey, are you Elijah? And John, in this long poetic discourse, said, no, I am not. Okay, there we go. I love it. Uh, John never, he never thought, he never had any uh, gr delusions of grandeur. He was always so humble and simple. But what is the connection between the two? It is their role and their mission. And the spirit of power in Elijah indicates that John the Baptist's ministry resembled Elijah's and that both of them had a ministry of preaching the word of repentance and reconciliation. And both of them had a lot of similarities. And so if you knew both of them, and there was no one old enough to know both of them, but one day we will know both of them. Like, yeah, aren't you guys like brothers separated at birth? And so there's such a commonality between there. And people would have known when these prophecies went forth. Everyone knew Elijah. And so they knew that uh, a man like Elijah would return and pave the way for the Messiah. All right, that was number one. Here's number two. John and Jesus shared a lot in common. In fact, did you know this? They saw each other at family reunions. So here's the deal. Uh, his father, John the Baptist's father, was a man named Zechariah, who was a priest uh, in the temple. And his mother, uh, Elizabeth, was a very godly woman. And so they prayed for years that they would have children, but they were unable to. They were too old, and they had given up, saying this is never going to happen. Does that sound familiar? You guys remember Abraham and Sarah? Uh, here it is. It's uh, the New Testament version of that. So then, one day, the, April, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. Zechariah, being quite terrified, um, was told this. It says on the next slide. In Luke 1, it says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So John's mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary, uh, according to Luke chapter 1, they were relatives. In fact, many scholars think that they were cousins. Now there is a chance that because of uh, Elizabeth's age, she was older than Mary. You know, Mary was just a, a youngin, a teenager. Um, like she could have been her great aunt. Either way, this would have made John and Jesus cousins. Although I think the gospel writers, there's a picture of John and Jesus together in a classic uh, painting from 1515. But I think the gospel writers wanted us to know that there is a much deeper connection between these two than just the fact that they occupied the same space in the family photo. There, there are many similarities. Here are just a few of them. Number one, their births were both prophesied centuries earlier. 
John in Isaiah 40 that we read already, and Jesus in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We all know that one uh, around Christmas time. Uh, another uh, similarity is that the angel Gabriel appealed, appeared to both of their parents to announce the miraculous birth of their sons. He appeared to Zechariah and then to Mary. Um, a third similarity is both were filled with the Holy Spirit since birth, which is not said of everyone in the scriptures, you know, very few. And given that, given the extraordinary nature of the mission of John and Jesus, the Holy Spirit was present in utero, which is amazing. Uh, number four, both were arrested and sentenced for doing what was right and good. John um, was executed uh, in Matthew 14. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And Jesus, as you know, um, was falsely accused. We can read about that in Matthew 26. Number three, look at us moving right along here. The third thing that I think we should know about John is this. For a long time, John's mailing address was the desert. All right? I'm not sure what zip code that is. It could be the same as those of you that live in the outer parts of Chesapeake. I am not sure. I love y'all, Chesapeake. I live in this little square thing in Virginia Beach, so I'm just envious, that's all. So, do you know how long John was in the desert before he appeared and started his public ministry? 20 years, give or take. So, uh, approximately from the ages of 12 to 32. Two decades. Like, my son is 12 years old. I can't imagine kissing him goodbye. and like, hey, I'll see you when you're 32. Good luck in the desert, right? I mean, this, this is serious stuff. And so, what would be, just to give us a picture on what life would be like in the desert if you're there for 20 years, here's, here's just a, a sampling. Life in the desert of Judea, there would be very little rainfall annually. It's a very dry place. From May to September, the heat, it's scorching. Um, the food is not easily found, hence the, the diet of honey and locusts, um, which apparently gives you an eight-pack, so keep that in mind. Um, the only thing that, that uh, the only company that John might have would have been bandits or wild animals like lions that roamed freely. And with all of this distress, there is no biblical record that John ever got any angelic assistance. So what happened in the desert? What was, what was John doing there? Was he collecting cactus? Was he just, was he playing Pokemon Go? Was he uh, just wandering, looking for a burning bush or some angel to help him? What was he doing? Well, in Luke 180, it says this, the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the desert until the day he publicly appeared in Israel. So John spent a long time in the desert. What were the things that we can assume that he was doing? Well, I'm pretty sure he was doing things like this, fasting. Even though we didn't have food, I know there's some of you fast, it's only because there's nothing in the fridge, am I right? But this was an intentional fasting so that he could draw closer to the Lord. Praying, the amount of praying that John did would probably blow all of our minds uh, when you have a lot of time and very little other things to do. The reading of scripture, the pouring over of scripture um, to build his faith and contemplating his mission as a forerunner. Can you imagine being John and reading the scrolls and reading Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 and 4 and reading about yourself? Man, that is sobering. I mean, for some of us, it can be enjoyable. Like, for instance, um, uh, here's an article. Here's a picture of me. I have to read about myself. 
circa 1987, Santum runs for a first down, right? The Mars high fighting planets. So um, I, get one, I get one sentence in there. Uh, and here's the funny thing I told the, the 830 service. This, this particular game, I was injured, um, and I still dressed, but I went in for one play because the dude, the, the running back was in there. He had to uh, put on, restrap his helmet. I came in one play, got the ball, got the first down, and they took my picture. And so the rest of my teammates, they hated me. So my uncle was a photographer, by the way. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> so anyhow, everyone loves to read articles about themselves. But this, is, this stuff is so trivial. Can you imagine? No wonder John needed two decades in the desert so he could wrap his mind around the significance and the weight and the gravity of being an integral part of these messianic prophecies. So why was John in the desert for so long? Why wasn't he able to just jump into his two years of preaching and baptizing? Well, if you know anything about Scripture, uh, the Jewish people have a long-standing tradition of wandering and being tested in the desert. Think of Moses and the Israelites, Joshua, David, Elijah. Obviously, Jesus would eventually go through that as well. People were transformed. People are transformed in the desert wilderness, as was John. The thing about forerunners is forerunners, you, you got to be a tough cookie. That is not for the faint of heart. They need to have incredible endurance, perseverance, and tenacity. They need to cut a path for others to follow. If you've ever been on a hike with your kids and, you know, the dad loves to have the machete, but you're just like cutting and hacking your way through so the others can follow the path that you made. This is what's happening in the spiritual realm that John is becoming a forerunner, not just making, he wasn't, he didn't go, he didn't spend, John didn't spend 20 years building an auditorium for Jesus to preach in, right? It's not that kind of preparation. In John's case, he needed to make the crooked path straight, creating a place of intersection for both a broken world and the royal arrival of a king and savior. Um, let me just say this. John would be a forerunner with a capital F, but you know who would be a forerunner with a small f? All y'all, myself included. Just think of the people that God has placed in your life that don't know Jesus. He is sending you as a co-laborer, as forerunners, into their lives. Think of for a moment, who are the people that don't know Christ in your life? And the opportunity that you have to come in and speak into their lives as a forerunner. Because they don't know Jesus yet, although they have met Jesus, they just don't know it. Because what they, what they could find so appealing about you all is the Christ in you. Remember? Uh, Christians means little Christ. You're like mini-me's of Jesus. You're chips off the old block. And so my admonition to us all as a little aside is do not take your personal ministry as a forerunner lightly. The people who don't know Christ in your life, you are a forerunner. And do that faithfully. Do that well. Well, the Holy Spirit, who probably was John's BFF throughout these 20 years, um, is tutoring him, strengthening him, preparing John to be the forerunner that he was called to be. Remember, guys, that the scripture tells us that, it, that the desert is a natural habitat for Satan and his evil spirits. And I guarantee you, John was involved in two decades of unbelievable spiritual warfare. As you would imagine, either Satan 
nor his cohorts, were excited about the idea of the coming of the Messiah. It would do anything in their power to thwart John the Baptist, who was his forerunner. Man, they're going to take a, you know they're going to take a pot shot at Jesus, but hey, you know, this, the devil knows the scriptures. Here's the forerunner. If we can take out John the Baptist, maybe we got something going. In fact, it did remind me a little bit of, uh, if any of you seen The Terminator, right? So The Terminator, he wants to take out John Connor, but in the movie, he goes back in time to 1984 to eliminate his mom. So by eliminating mom, the forerunner, they, by, in turn, can eliminate him. This is kind of what it's like. They're, they're launching a preemptive strike. Um, by the way, that might, not, that might not be the last Terminator reference you hear today, but that's uh, besides the point. Um, before uh, I direct your attention to the fine folks that are behind me, let me just say this. Um, just another little public spiritual announcement over here in my soapbox. I know that some of you are probably going through a desert experience yourself. You've been wandering in a spiritual desert, feeling like that God has forgotten you. You feel like you have no angelic help. Maybe you feel like you have no help from friends. You feel alone, but I'm telling you, an encouragement to you is that the evil spirits are the only thing that work at work in the desert. The Holy Spirit is always at work there. People that went to the desert never came back the same as they let God have his work. So my prayer for you is that God, that you would have grace. Do not become weary in well-doing. Let the Holy Spirit have his perfect work in your, in your wandering in your desert season because the Lord is preparing you. The Lord is preparing you for beautiful fruit. Amen? Amen. Well, I have one more, one more point to make. But before I do, I figured, you know what? Let's, let's do it in a more creative way as well. So I asked four of my thespian friends here, uh, Lydia Ripley, uh, Emma Batten, Caleb Jones, and my son Ethan, I got a little skit for you um, that will help uh, pave the way for our final point today, number four. So, ladies and gentlemen, as you were. All right, all right, all right, family. It's time to decide where we're going on our family vacation next summer. Now, as you know, I recently received a pretty nice raise at work, so our vacation options are to infinity and beyond. You got a raise, Dad? Well, show me the money. Okay, okay, okay. Calm down, Sarah. We're not rich. Now, if I had a million dollars, I'd be rich. Sarah Marie, you have a fine job at Monk's Cafe. Are you telling me you can't get no satisfaction from your salary? You work hard for that money. So hard for it, honey. And besides, you should be saving some of that money for when we go on vacation, wherever that turns out to be. Mountains, Daddy. I want to see mountains again. Mountains, eh, Mikey? See, honey? He likes it. You know, there are so many beautiful places to see, but that Colorado Rocky Mountain High is really hard to beat. How about we live it up in some hotel in California? Oh, yeah. I wish they could all be California girls. Mikey, that's enough of that. Didn't the Petersons move out to San Diego? They were such good friends of yours. Friends? Say hello to my little friends. Good grief. Please try to stay focused on the topic at hand, honey. California sounds pretty good, right? Oh, what a spectacular road trip that would be. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. How about 
Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I wanna take it to Bermuda, Bahama. Come on, pretty mama. Don't even start with me. I'm serious. Hey, mom, why so serious? You wanna keep up that sassy attitude, son? Go ahead, make my day. Hey, dad, do you like Apple? How about we go to New York City, the big Apple? Oh, New York, New York, I wanna be a part of it. Just go there and relax. How do you like them apples? So you're saying we should go to New York City and relax? You keep on using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> well, I'm sure Central Park can be very relaxing. Okay, okay. You guys know why we can't go to New York City on vacation, right? No. Why don't you tell us? I think going to New York is a fine idea. I don't think I should tell you, because I don't think you want to know the truth. In fact, you can't handle the truth! I think I'm entitled to know why we can't go to New York for vacation. That's why, Mom. You of all people should know, we can't take little baby Steve into the big city. All he'll do is cry and whine and stress everyone out. He's our son. We have to try. Mom, we do or not do. There is no try. Uh, I can't stand little Steven's crying right now. Just go put him over there in the corner. Sarah, you know the rule. No one puts baby in a corner. <sighs> Look at the time. Uncle Eddie and Aunt Catherine are going to be here for dessert at any point. I guess we're going to have to table this vacation conversation until tomorrow at breakfast. They're here. What are we all saying? Why can't we have a normal conversation without quoting movie lines or reiterating song lyrics? Have we lost all originality? Is the best we can do to mimic what's popular? Have we actually forgotten that we have our own voice? Better get the door, Dad. Uncle Adi and Aunt Catherine are waiting out there. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll be back. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. You know, maybe we should just do a staycation instead. After all, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was the last one. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Good. How many got most of those pop culture references, huh? All right. You can ask, uh, you can ask Caleb Jones if you missed him. He will be sure to fill you in. So uh, why did we show that skit um, besides just to have uh, a little bit of fun, which we're allowed to have in church? Amen? Um, so the purpose of skit is they're, they're, they're mimicking everything that's popular. You know, we love to quote movie lines and song lyrics. But whenever you lose your own voice, your sense of originality, that is a sad, sad thing. So here's how it bridges into point number four. John's message was revolutionary. It was revolutionary, and I'm going to tell you how. John was the first prophetic voice in 
hundred years. Can you even imagine the church in America, which, you know, we're not even 400 years old. Can you imagine going 400 years as a people and not hearing the voice of God? Imagine the, dis the disillusionment that you would feel, the sense of abandonment. And inevitably, inevitably, the longer God's voice is silent, there will be people that will rise up and they will deputize themselves. They will be self-proclaimed prophets and they will say, let me speak on behalf of God. Let me fill in the blanks. And uh, that is exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees said, hmm, this is like open mic night, right? I'm going to grab the mic and we're going to tell the people what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. All right, so before John came on the scene, the Pharisees began to control this narrative. And I will say this, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, they were, uh, they were kind of middle-class businessmen, men of the people that uh, played uh, a leadership role in the Sanhedrin. They had a small part in there, but they were very influential in governing uh, the moral life of the Jews and dictating what was pleasing to God, what was not, and what the nature of the kingdom of God was. So to summarize the... To summarize your narrative, you know, I'm simplifying here. But if you have the next slide there, this is the two-part narrative that the, that the Pharisees are spinning in the time of God's silence about the nature of the kingdom of God. The first one is this, that ancestry was kind of a get-out-of-judgment-free card. They claimed that the Jews had God's special favor, particularly because of their ancestral connection to people like Abraham and Moses. As long as you were part of that lineage, you were good to go. Secondly, they said in order to really merit God's favor, to keep God's favor, you need to have strict adherence to the Torah and any other moralist rules that the Pharisees taught or invented in the temple. So this is the, this is the narrative whenever John comes along. John comes along with his original voice. He's not quoting song lyrics by the Pharisees, not quoting moody, um, movie lines by the Pharisees. He comes with the original fresh voice of the Spirit. And uh, he comes across and says the two amazing counterpoints. The first one is that people's natural lineage to Abraham and Moses counts for nothing. A big bottle of Jack Squat. And here's what John says to the Pharisees. You remember this from Matthew 3? He says, And do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, probably pointing to stones on the riverbank, God can raise up children for Abraham. See, John is setting the stage for New Testament life when it's not about physical ancestral birth, but it's all about spiritual rebirth. Uh, I, I found this interesting. In Luke 1, when they presented John as a baby uh, in the temple, as you were supposed to do, um, everyone expected that John's name would be Zachariah, because that was his father's name. And they found that his name was John. They're like, whoa, whoa, his name should be Zachariah. You know, you've got to follow the ancestral food chain, right? Um, you have to, did you go on Ancestry.com? Is there anyone in your lineage that has a name John? At least name him after someone that you're related to. Like, nope. His name is John. So what is so cool about that is that John's very name shuns all aspects of his earthly lineage because his name came right from heaven. Do you understand how beautiful and, pro and profound that is? And then secondly, 
the, the second point there, which rebuffs the Pharisees' narrative, is that the salvation in the kingdom of God has nothing to, or very little to do with rule keeping, but it's about finding a remedy for the sinful heart. I love how John points to a way of salvation that has nothing to do with three things that have been hallmarks in Jewish worship for centuries. One, obedience to the Torah. Two, membership of the temple. And three, the offering of animal sacrifices. This is what the Jews have built their whole existence around it. And John comes in and is like, nope, all of those off the table. They don't matter anymore. <gasps> Dude, this will blow your hair back if you're a Pharisee, right? But it has everything to do with the spirit of brokenness, humility, and repentance, which leaves men and women desperate for a person in which to place their faith. People that are desperate for a savior. And that's really good news because every forerunner has got someone of importance behind them. And so John paves the way through a spirit of repentance and people realize their need for a savior and that the temple, the Torah, the animal sacrifice, and none of these things are going to save them. Now, who do they turn to? We're desperate. Ah, and that's when Jesus arrives on the scene. Amen. Well, let me, let me wrap this up because we are going to have a nice, smooth transition right in here to uh, a time of the Lord's Supper, the taking of communion. If we want to get a complete picture of John the Baptist, let me just mention this verse real quickly. If you show the next slide, Jesus said this about John. Among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty, because with the exception of Adam and Eve, Everyone has been born of a man or woman. So basically, Jesus saying John as a Baptist is the greatest person that has ever lived. That's basically what he's saying. However, the verse isn't finished. He does a kind of a 180, and then the, uh, the next slide shows the end of Matthew 11, 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you know who he's getting at here? The least in the kingdom of heaven. You know who that is? That's all of us. The least in the kingdom of heaven are those that from a firsthand experience have gotten to experience the redemptive work of Jesus. You understand for John, John, he ended up losing his life before Jesus gave his. So he was kind of like Moses looking at the promised land from afar but never got to enter into it. He was kind of like the angels that the Bible says look longingly, enviously, you know, to human beings who can, uh, who experience firsthand the forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' death and resurrection. You understand what Jesus is saying? John is so amazing, but the least of these in the kingdom of heaven is greater because they get to experience the new birth. That's beautiful. So here's the bottom line. John was truly great because his whole life pointed to the greatest and that is the person of Jesus Christ. He was the one that was here to glorify the one whose sandals he did not feel worthy to untie. And can there be any better reminders we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that with his spirit of repentance, let's take a humble posture before the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.